Hi, this is Dion Baig from Butler Mortgage. We're currently ranked the number one mortgage brokerage in Ontario and number two in Canada. And much of our success is due to the fact that we help clients acquire multiple investment properties. If you'd like to talk with a mortgage advisor who specializes in investment property, you can reach me at 888-684-8326. To learn more about what's going on in the world of investment property financing, check out episode 23 of the Breakthrough Podcast, where I discuss the topic with Robin Sandy. Are you someone who has no idea that they can be heard? Has brilliant ideas and wants to get them out there? Has a podcast but can't keep up with the work or just wants to focus on things that matter? Then Podcast Engineers is your gateway to get your voice heard. They don't just edit your podcast. They enhance your listeners' experience. You simply do what you do best. That is to record and they do the rest. You can find them at podcastengineers.com. Rob and I have been using Podcast Engineers to help make our show sound great. Send them an email to get an episode edited free and a discounted plan. Are you stressed about insurance? Get a custom insurance policy at a good price that lets you rest easy knowing your business is covered in case of a loss. With over six years of experience specializing in insuring small to medium-sized businesses in Ontario, your focus should be growing your business and ours is to protect it. Contact on at theinsurers.ca. Breakthrough Risk Investing Podcast, Episode 63. And welcome to the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. We put this show together to inspire you and help you break through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. My name is Rob Brake. Here with me, as always, is Sandy McKay. Hey, Sandy. How you doing? I'm amazing. You? Really, really good. Had a great holiday. And I know that uh, this is going to come out quite a bit after the holidays, but really Christmas just ended. The other day, and I actually just had uh, Christmas with my parents and the kids and everything yesterday. So it's uh, still very recent for us. What did you end up doing over the holidays? We did a week in Jamaica with some family, so that was better than here, and it wasn't it wasn't to minus you know thirty or twenty or whatever it is here. It's freezing. Yeah, yeah. So that was good, and then uh, just some family stuff around town, and nothing overly exciting around here. Just kind of the typical Christmas stuff. But it was all good and fun seeing family again and uh, hanging out and taking a little bit of a breather from business. Oh, that sounds amazing. So the whole family went to Jamaica? Uh, we had like Kate's side of it, my wife's side, about 10 of us. Right. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it was good. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't get away like that, but we definitely had fun and got together with family and friends and everything and had a good time. Of course, it's all about my kids and stuff. You know what my wife does? Sandy, and tell me if you agree with this. All the presents have to be from Santa. None of them can be from us. I don't think that's fair. I don't get any credit. She says later on they'll realize, and I'll get all the credit then. That's not what it's about right now, but I disagree. I'd like a couple of them to be from me, but whatever. Do you deserve the credit, though, or does she do all the shopping? Uh, No, we actually go out together, you know, pick stuff yeah. out for the kids. It's fun. Okay. It's funny, some of the stuff that I got them, like I got them this cool... uh like it's a robot, but it's a remote control and stuff. And one of my sons, my oldest one, he hasn't even looked at it. It's like still just sitting there. 
So the ones that I thought that he would really, really like, and then some of the stocking stuffers are the favorites. It's like when they're babies, they unwrap the toy and play with the box. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think the listeners ought to be doing, Sandy? Do you have any advice for them? What they ought to be doing? Well, of course, they got to go over to our website, pick up our free report. We might have something new there for them, actually, by the time this one comes out. I'm hoping we will. If not, we will by the next episode. we got a free gift there for now, at least. It's our seven freedom activators you can trigger in your property starting right now. That will help you with both finding properties, running them smoothly, and eliminating your headaches from the management side of things. Uh, there might be a new free uh, gift there. As I said, it's coming out very soon. So hopefully we'll have that in place by this episode. I won't tell you what it is, but it's going to be really cool. So definitely go pick that up. And what else, Rob? Well, I think while you're on the website, if you want to, um, there's a place where you can comment on any of the episodes that we've put out so far. So if you have something to say about one of the guests or or some of the content that we've had on our show, then just go over there, click on the episode that you would like to comment on, and then you can leave your comments right there for everyone to see. And, of course, we'll respond to them, and hopefully we'll start a little bit of a community going and we can do some back and forth and and get everyone's questions answered so uh, that's another thing that they can do and of course we would really like everyone to go over to iTunes and write us a review and currently we have 111 five star reviews on iTunes and we've gotten a couple more since last time we did our show so I'm just going to read them we've got two since the last show so I'll just read those couple, and I want to say thank you to everyone who's taken the time to do that, because I know as quick as it is to write a thing, you still got to go in, sign up, take your time, and and write something down. So the first one is by W. Bozer, and he says, thank you, thank you, five stars. Finally, I found a Canadian content podcast that is worth listening to. I have been looking to buy a rental property to start creating cash flow and leave some legacy for my children. I was overwhelmed on where to start. After listening to your podcast, I feel like I have some direction now. So that is great. Really appreciate that from W. Bozer. And then here's one from Sarah Larby. And she says, great content, great hosts. Five stars. I really enjoy listening to these podcasts and I wish there was more of them. I drive a lot being in sales. So instead of the radio, I listen to podcasts like this one. All of the episodes are very informative. You have great content and great guests. Keep it up, Sandy and Rob. So again, you know, just if you want to help out the show, that's the best way that you can do it is just go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It doesn't have to be five stars, but of course, those are the ones we really, really like. But if you have some constructive criticism, please feel free to, you know, leave us a comment regardless of what it is. So that being said, I don't really think we have too much to discuss. And Chris? Yeah, so we've got Chris Steep here with us today. And Chris is a published writer and author, uh, landlording course instructor, and the president of the Landlords Association of Durham. Uh, he's the owner and hands-on operator of five multi-residential properties. Six and now. Commercial- Six now. Okay, <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and he's also a commercial real estate broker of record at Aztec Realty in Toronto. Uh, specializing in income generating and multi-residential investment properties. So welcome to the show again, Chris. Thank you again. I just wanted to mention that your book helps guide people through the purchase and management of multi-residential properties. And I know you're going to talk about that a little bit as well today. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining Mm -hmm. us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Did you want to tell us a little bit about your investing journey so far? Well, I guess in 2009, 
after 35 years in the information technology business, I realized I wouldn't be able to retire comfortably. Even though I was making a good living, I hadn't really invested and any of that money, and I didn't know what to do with it. So it took me a few months. I decided uh, after looking at a variety of different options, you know, buy a company, start another company, you know, invest in stocks, all of the usual things. I finally decided and settled on real estate. Even though I had astigmatism, I thought the industry was uh, a kind word would be. It crawled on its stomach, I suppose. Yeah. And many of the people I had met who were in the business seemed disingenuous to me. So I had some trouble deciding on real estate. But once I finally did decide on that, and the key driver there was that it was the only type of investment that I could find where I could invest 25% of my money to own 100% of what it was I bought. And you can't do that when you buy a company. You can't borrow money to start up a company, generally speaking. You're never going to get 25% on the dollar from a lender to buy stocks. Real estate was the only one. And then I decided from that, it took me another couple months to decide on what type of property. And I finally settled on multi-residential rental properties for a whole bunch of reasons. So that was uh, 2009. I started that. 2011, April, I purchased my first property. And as of today, as you mentioned in the intro, I own six properties, totaling 54 units. That is fantastic. 54 units. 5-4. That's right. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping to add 21 plus 12, 33 more units this year. This year? I'm working nice. on two properties now. That's great. So you've already got your eyes on the properties. Oh, yes. Yeah, I have an offer in on one of them already. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Okay, so, well, we kind of skipped the whole middle section there, I guess. Maybe tell us a bit about your first purchase and some of the ups and downs that came along with that. Okay, uh, that actually is an interesting story because once I finally decided on what I was looking for, the time lag between when I first decided to look and when I made my first property, it was almost two years. I had actually put in an offer on a property in Waterloo, a 12-plex, and that deal failed because of a lender who kept on changing the goalposts. And I can expand on that if you like, but that's the short answer. Then the second property I put an offer in on was a 9-plex in Toronto, and that failed because I needed extra time for the financing CMHC had delayed the process. And when I went back to the seller represented by a uh, realtor, when I went back to the realtor and asked for an extension, they said no, and then relisted the property at a higher value because I had uncovered some hidden value in that property. Mm. So that was my first lesson in the dark side of real estate. And then the third property, was a barn burner, was financially very lucrative. The problem was it had five dedicated apartment units and then eight boarding rooms, right? Yeah. Where they had a common area, right? They had a common area, but uh, private bedrooms. And it was very financially viable. However, when I went to the lenders, all of them without exception said they won't finance it because the uh, boarding rooms are too tenuous and unpredictable. So I had to let that one go. And then the uh, fourth one was the one that I eventually purchased. And even then, that was April 2011, 
Even then, there were five offers on that property. Hmm. I went back and forth uh, with the realtor and eventually submitted an offer based on their asking price. And I was up against one other individual at that time. Apparently, uh, who knows the truth of that? In those days, phantom offers were still legal. You know, real estate agents said, I've got this, I've got that. And who knows the truth of it? In any case, I did submit the offer and I won it. And I haven't looked back since. And that one was what again? That was an 11 plex in Oshawa. In Oshawa. So the city chose me. I didn't choose it. Finding properties was and still is very, very difficult. Ones are viable, they're priced correctly. They're just really hard to find. And I would argue probably 70% of that investment decision is based on the financials, not on location. Unlike you know buying a home or maybe a retail plaza where location has a great deal more bearing on the decision. I find that purchasing a multi-residential investment property Location is far less important. Mm-hmm. So now I guess we're sort of transitioning into it anyway. So do you want to walk us through your financial analysis process? Sure. I've written and developed a spreadsheet that I actually hand out to my students in my class. And I take them through, it takes a day, about eight hours, just to go through all of the variables that I collect and then analyze the different ratios that I feel are critical to making a decision. I should emphasize that in every case, those uh, ratios aren't uh, deal makers or deal breakers. In other words, if someone says, uh, I've got a six cap, and it turns out truly to be a six cap, whatever that means, it doesn't mean I'm still gonna buy the property. I look at a number of other ratios as well. One of them is what we call the break-even ratio. The lender, when they analyze a property, they look at a number of variables, but the two big ones, one is what we call the BER, or break-even ratio, and the second one is called the debt service coverage ratio. BER basically means that if a property loses a certain percentage of its revenue, the bank still wants that property to be able to finance the mortgage, obviously. So they look for a BER of 85%. And what that means is that the property can lose 15% of its income because of vacancies or fire or anything else, you know, some kind of catastrophic event. Mm -hmm. And the income that the property produces will still cover all of the operational expenses and still cover all the financing. So they want a BER of at least 85%. Okay. The other key ratio that they look at is the debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. And that normally when you're buying a home would be the personal DSCR of the purchaser. In this case, in commercial properties, that is not the situation. They look at the DSCR of the property, not the individual because many of these properties are purchased under a numbered company name or you know a named company, which means that that company has to stand on its own financial merit. So the lender needs to know that that company will have the financial wherewithal to meet its obligations. And that DSCR for property, for most commercial properties and for most lenders needs to be 1.3. In the case of multi-res, 
because it is such an attractive product for most lenders, they look for a DSCR 1.2. Okay. It's not a super drastic change, but no, I'm sure it makes all the difference. It does make a difference for sure. So there are a couple of other ratios. I don't know how much you want me to get into that. Yeah, go ahead. All right. I'm just going to open up my own spreadsheet here to remind me because that's 200 lines, <laughs> uh, give or take. Another one that I look at is the cash flow versus the purchase price of the property. Everyone talks about cap rate, and cap rate only refers to the net operating income of a property. That means the income from the property minus the operational expenses of the property. So that net operating income, often referred to as NOI, N-O-I, all realtors will tell you, well, you take the NOI, you divide it by the cap rate, and that tells you what the value of the property is as a baseline. The problem with NOI is that it doesn't tell you anything about financing, and it doesn't tell you anything about the condition of a property. So you could have a really high cash flowing property, and the property is uh, distressed. You know, it needs a new roof. It needs a new furnace. Uh, the windows are original from the 1960s. That could be a two or $300,000 upgrade, and NOI won't tell you that. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you could have a cap rate that says 7% and the market is trading at 5 I guess I'll sidetrack here slightly, segue, and say that from the simplest perspective, a cap rate is return on investment from the perspective of the buyer. So if you had, I don't know, $100,000 and you wanted to get a return on investment from the bank, well, you put that in the bank, bank account will give you what? 1% maybe. Right. So there's got to be a compelling reason for why you would want to invest it in real estate and take on all the problems associated with it, as well as the substantial risk that could arise. So you want a return on investment that's better than what the banks would give you. And in the GTA market, up until perhaps four months ago, that cap rate was around 5% in the major urban centers. It's starting to climb a little bit. So you could have a cap rate of 7%, then the buyer will be ecstatic. But if the buyer is ecstatic, then the seller isn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's an inverse relationship, right? So the higher the cap rate, the lower the value of the property. And I'd have to show you the arithmetic or show your listeners that arithmetic. But that's the relationship. So if you've got a cap rate of 7%, it could turn out that, sure, you're getting a great return on investment, but again, it doesn't consider the tremendous capital costs that could arise. And usually that's my first suspicion. If there's a cap rate that's really high, there is a problem, high relative to the market, of course, then there's probably a significant problem of some kind. And then, of course, like you said, it doesn't take into account the mortgage payments. That's right. And that's another key factor. So when I'm looking at ratios, one of the things I want to look at is not the net operating income. I want to know how much money is going into my pocket. And that's called cash flow, profit, and it's basically your net operating income minus your financing before depreciation or what the government now calls capital cost allowance. So that cash flow divided into the price, the purchase price represents a ratio and I'm looking for at least 1.5. So the higher that number, the better. 
And then I look at how much money I put in versus how much money the property is generating. And that's called cash on cash return. And I look at that number as well. And that's what a lot of people intuitively look at, even if they don't really understand the formula. And sometimes investors don't realize or they forget that when they're paying down the mortgage, they're paying down the principal. And that principal should be recaptured because that's money that you've actually got as equity in your property. So I look at cash flow without financing, with financing, and with the recapture of the mortgage principal. I have three different ratios, and that's a moving target. Well, that is a lot of info, and uh, <laughs> well, no, yeah. it definitely is. It's good info, but of course, it's it's hard to retain for people that are just learning. Getting started. Basically, what they should do is sign up for your course, I guess, and get your spreadsheet. Uh, I would strongly recommend that. I mean, I'm not going to become a millionaire teaching this course. I do it mostly because when I was running a landlord's association, I would get the same kinds of basic level questions. And I'd realize that, you know, these people would spend hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars to buy a property and not fully understand the implications, which is why they come to the landlord association meetings to find out what it is that they don't know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the spreadsheet represents years literally years of development to come up with numbers that the ultimate goal of every investment property is that it should be self-sustaining. In other words, your tenants are supposed to be paying off your bills, paying off the mortgage and leaving you some profit. That's the goal of every investment property. If it's not doing that, if you don't understand how that works and if it starts to lose money and you don't understand why it's losing money or more importantly, how can you, turn that around so it is generating a profit, especially in Ontario, where the residential tenancy laws are arguably the most difficult geography in the world in which to run a rental property business. If you don't understand those things, you're heading for a whole pile of hurt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sandy, did you have any questions about that or... The one with you were talking about cash and cash returns. Was there a specific return that you look for numbers wise on that one? Nope. Just higher than what I get if I invested in the bonds. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, which I would assume isn't that hard when you're looking at buildings like this. Yeah, I mean, by itself there isn't an answer because there are so many variables. I don't walk away from a property because the cash on cash is low, for example. It might be low for valid reasons. It could be high for artificial reasons. So you really can't take it out of the context of the other numbers. I'm looking at one right now that has a 10.4% cash on cash return. The BER is 69.8. The DSR is 1.7. This is a phenomenal product. This is an outstanding product and it'd be really easy to finance. But it generates about $42,000 of cash flow based on an income of 145000 give or take. So the expenses are high. Yeah, there just isn't a simple answer. You have to look at all the variables, find out why one's particularly high or low, explain it, and recognize it as either a potential liability that you can't fix a potential liability that you can fix, which then transcribes into an upside, or 
it's too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So really, like, I guess the point we're driving home here is that cap rate is not everything. So a lot of people do present that number as the uh, be-all, end-all kind of thing when you're looking at investment property of this type, and it's certainly not from, uh, uh, from most what you're telling Most definitely it is not. And again, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. You can have a high cap rate and have no cash flow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's entirely possible. The banks won't let you do that, you know, but that's what will happen with a lot of these properties. The number one failure of uh, deal closings of investment properties has always been and remains to this day financing. Mm-hmm. So the buyer says, yeah, I'll pay a million dollars. The seller says, great, that's the price I want. And then when you go to the bank or to a lender, they say, well, we're only going to give you 600000 and you have to come up with the, the other 400000 yourself. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought you were going to give me 750000 because 25% down is the norm. And they right. say, yeah, well, the property's not worth a million dollars. Well, yes, it is, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, then the deal fails because the guys can't come up with the other 150000 that they needed on top of their two fifty. Mm-hmm. All right. So knowing cash flow is absolutely essential. And I'm astonished at the number of real estate agents when I ask them as a seller representative, how much does your buyer client uh, have as a deposit? And he says, well, I haven't asked because that's none of my business. <laughs> and, I, and I say it's absolutely essential that you know that or you're wasting your time, your client's time and mine. Because if they don't have the requisite deposit and a little bit of extra money to cover closing costs, then you're going to spend two months tying up your property only to find out that they didn't get their financing. Uh, Here's a little side note. Have you ever used any kind of creative financing at all? All the time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? We're getting way off track, but I'm sure that's okay. Because that is something that can come in really, really handy, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I'll give you two examples. They both happened in the last year, one on my property, one on a client's property. On my property, the very first property that I bought, I had paid, I can't remember exactly, let's say it's 900000 It's a bit less than that, 900000 in 2011. And I had been chasing a property close by, an owner, private sale, for two years. And the owner finally came back and said, okay, I'm ready to sell now. Well, opportunities in real estate are never convenient or they're rarely convenient. I didn't have the cash, but I had a lot of equity. By the time that opportunity came around, that first property I had increased from 900000 to $1.3 million. Mm-hmm. So I had a $400,000 equity in the property and uh, I had one year to go on my mortgage and commercial mortgages are different from residential you cannot blend the rates you can't terminate early with a small penalty you can't pay down your mortgage over time it's fixed it's locked in and if you want to get out of your commercial mortgage you've got to pay the full penalty equal to all the interest that would have been earned oh really Yes. So I would have had to pay one year of interest in order to refinance my property to unlock that $400,000. Okay. Instead, I found a lender that, in fact, the lender that gave me the first mortgage arranged through their contacts to give me a second mortgage for one year, interest only, 
I took out that 300,000 I use as the deposit on the fifth building I bought. Very good. Yeah, and then at the end of that year, when they both came due, when I refinanced, I had money, obviously, between the 900000 and $1.3 million. I paid off the first mortgage. I refinanced the second mortgage, and I had a new property. And I think the net, when I was all done, I had about $35,000 left over. That's perfect. So that was a – through the same lender that you used, they gave you a, a concurrent second mortgage they it, didn't. They, they arranged didn't. Oh, through their contacts. Through their okay. contacts. Gotcha. So they called up one of their people. So right? it's like a private uh, lender. It's a private lender. That's right. Okay. But because of the relationships that they had, they were able to put me in touch with this private lender, and I established credibility with them, I guess, combined with the lender's recommendation. And the strength of the property. Of course. Yeah. Both properties. Right. The new one and the existing one. Exactly. Yeah. Do you want to know about the second one with my client? Sure. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So the second one, he had a 48-unit property. This was also in Oshawa. It's a four-story with an elevator. And he was asking $6.7 million for it. And he had a first mortgage of, I can't remember the exact number, but let's say it's $2 million to keep it simple. All right. He has the classic problem that I run into all the time. Owners of the properties think that by getting a small first mortgage, they can keep their financing costs down. It makes it, of course, you know, more money in their pocket. And that's clever. And then they lock it in for five years. And that's okay. I mean, that's good if you're going to hold on to that property. But if you're going to sell that, which is what he decided to do three years after. So he still had two years left on his mortgage. And anybody that wanted to assume that mortgage, it was an attractive rate, but it was only $2 million. Mm-hmm. So they have to come up with $5.7 million. Who's going to do that? Even if they had the money, why wouldn't you take that $5.7 million and go buy a $20 million product instead of a $6.7 million product, right? 25% down, $5 million times mm-hmm. four. You know, give you a $20 million product. So why would you put all your money into a property like that? So that was a huge challenge for this fellow to sell the property and for anybody that was representing him, like me. And then, of course, if he wanted to cancel that first mortgage, he was facing a $112,000 penalty. That's the interest that would be earned over the two years remaining. So trying to find a buyer for that property who would put that kind of money down was next to impossible. In fact, it was impossible. The only person that you would find is somebody who had oodles of cash and foreign investors are the most likely people to do that. You know, they want to put the money into the property, not because they care about the cash flow, but they have ulterior reasons for investing in the Canadian real estate. That's a long conversation, maybe for another time. (laughs) The short version is I received seven offers on that property and One of them said, what would it take to win this? And and I said, well, you know, I can't tell you that. That's illegal. But you tell me what your structure is, and I'll tell you whether or not it's satisfactory. And ultimately, what we did was they put down $3 million, which represents just less than half of the value of the property. They assumed the first mortgage, which was $2 million, 
and my client reluctantly agreed to provide a VTB for two years for the remainder. Now, he was reluctant at first until he realized that he was going to get a good return on his investment. So what was that? Five, 2.7 million, give or take. He was going to get a really nice uh, return on his investment on an um, annualized basis from his mortgage. And he wasn't going to be paying a big chunk of cash on the capital gains and on the sale of the property because he wasn't getting a lump sum payment, right? He had deferred $2.7 million right. to future years. So everybody won in that case. He didn't have to pay his uh, $112,000, which means instead of getting 6.7, he got 6.82, right? Because mm-hmm. he had the 112 on top of the 6.7. Most people don't realize that when you have a mortgage that's assumed by the new buyer, that the lender will not release you as a guarantor. You have to stay on as a guarantor of that first mortgage, even though you have nothing to do with the property anymore. Of course, that scares a lot of people, and it scared my client as well. And I said, okay, so what's going to happen if this new operator completely defaults? He said, well, they'd have to sell the property. And I said, well, would they be selling for less than $3.5 million? No, that's against the law, right? I mean, power of sale, they have to get the um, a fair market value, or at least try but whatever it was, it's going to be a lot more than 3.5 million. I said, well, you'd never be on the hook for more than that because you only have to guarantee the mortgage. And the mortgage is $2 million, uh, and you've got your own VTB, and you'd happily take it back and keep their money. So it took a little while to educate him, probably a month or so. But there again was a creative structure that was not thought about by realtors who had tried to sell his property previously. And so the buyers had to come up with roughly, what is that, like 35% or something? Oh, I think it's higher than that. It's closer to 40%, I think. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have to. They offered. Right. Because they wanted to win this business, and he didn't want to pay the penalty. We actually got a higher offer, but it would have been traditional financing, which means we would be subject to the whim of the lender market, which was tightening up. We didn't know the buyer and their capabilities. You know, they tie up the property for two months and then uh, nothing happens. This way, we didn't have any traditional financing clause. Right? We didn't have to go mm-hmm. to a lender. Yeah, that's right? right. So the closing was faster. The qualification process was better. The conditions were easily managed, and we didn't have to worry about the financing. And he got an extra hundred grand that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. I think that we are blowing people's minds. <laughs> this is one they're going to have to listen to a couple of times. Uh, don't yeah, get me take started. notes. <laughs> yeah, take notes. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we've got a list of questions in front of us. I think we're actually on question number three right now. <laughs> I was going to transition into it, if that's all right. It's going to take us away maybe a little bit from the analysis financially, although maybe it won't. I guess, um, and you touched on obviously the financial aspects of it. But how do you suggest somebody goes about finding the right building to buy? Oh, man, that takes a couple (laughs) hours in my class to go through that as well. Forget the MLS. I would argue, I think successfully, that 70% of all the investment properties that are sold in Ontario, possibly in Canada, never make it to the MLS. They're sold either privately between two individuals who know each other, which is what I did on the sixth property, 
my partner had two properties on one side of the street and he knew the owner on the other side of the street and uh, was able to bring that owner to the table and we bought the property privately. So that was a local connection, if you will, you know, of one landlord staying in touch with their neighborhood landlords. Uh, another thing that you could do is uh, sign up with all of the commercial brokerages for their newsletters. So CBRE, Avison Young, Colliers, you know, all of these big operators that work in the uh, Marcus and something, they all work in the uh, residential investment property marketplace. So when something comes up, you may learn about it that way. Connecting with specialists like myself, and that's not a plug for me. I'm just saying that I would argue that there's probably 50, 50 real estate people who really understand multi-res. Out of the 47,000 realtors in Ontario, which is the largest per capita real estate to population ratio in the world. Really? In my book, I calculated that there's uh, one real estate agent for every 43 working people in Toronto. Yeah, 47,000 agents in Toronto only, right? That's correct. Yeah. In TREB, in the Toronto Real Treb, Estate Board, yeah. 47. That's right. 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 Ontario has, I think, 63,000 or something. Right. Now, you know, I heard, and this could be off, but about 50% of those guys do maybe one deal or less a year. That's right. I've got the numbers. I don't know what they are off the top of my head, but a substantial number do, as you said, only one transaction or none. Yeah. I believe that there's a turnover of at least 3,000 real estate. If you go to the TREB numbers, you'll see that 3,000 people leave this industry every year, and yet it continues to grow. Hmm. But that means that you've got people who are coming in, so all the new people – don't have any experience. 3,000 people who tried have failed. The odds that you're going to run into a real estate agent doesn't have enough experience to advise you on your life savings and investment of your life savings in a property, whether for your personal purchase, you know, to live in or to invest in. The odds are high that you're going to run into someone that doesn't have the requisite knowledge to do that. And it's one of my I don't know, pet peeves, if you will, with the uh, current licensing regime in Ontario. There's no internship. There's no preparation. You take five two-week courses, and now you're licensed to sell anything from a cemetery to an oil refinery. Yeah. Right? And you get a lot of residential reps who try to sell a multi-res property. When that happens, I wind up doing both sides of the deal. Yeah. Even though I only get half the commission. So I guess the biggest tip out of that then is either talk to the right real estate professional and also just talk to people about what you're interested in doing. Yeah, there are a couple of other things that you could do. Talk to all the people who would normally interact with owners. And who are those people? Electricians, plumbers, snowplow, fire alarm inspectors, trustees, bankers, accountants, lawyers. Right? They all talk to owners of properties. I did find uh, one property because of the guy who did my fire extinguishers. He said, oh, I heard John Smith is uh, selling his property. Bingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have his phone number? That's how uh, I found one of my properties, because of a contractor. Uh, newsletters. 
you know, there's another one, online forums like this one. There's a place called Ontario Landlord Watch, I think. It's a forum for landlords on Facebook. They will sometimes say, look, I'm thinking about selling my property, blah, blah, blah. Who should I talk to? Anybody interested? You know, they'll often talk amongst themselves before they'll ever take it to a real estate agent. You know, there's a couple of other tips. Yeah, we're all into tips. Yeah, for sure. If you've got more, let's share them. Yeah, tips. It means to ensure promptness. Okay. It's an old English word. See, aren't you glad you tuned in today? (laughs) (laughs) So that's awesome information there on how to find the building. And when you do actually find the right one, you purchased it, what are things you look to do in the short like immediately when you take it over how do you add value what do you do well i think there are two different questions there the first one is uh what's the first things i do when i bought a property is that what you're asking or when i found the property to analyze it yeah no let's talk about when you take it over okay so yeah okay so once i've taken it over one of the very first things i do is i go and visit every tenant And I take a sheet along with me for each of those tenants that identifies essentially the relationship between the landlord and the tenant. And what I mean by that is it'll ask their emergency contact information, which often the previous owner doesn't have. And I've needed that information more than once in my eight year career. I've needed it a few times. So that's important to have. I ask them to confirm their rent when they last increased their rent and what that increase amount was. I ask them if they have any pets, and that's why I go to see them, because I want to see if they have any pets. I want to know if they're a smoker. I want to know that the smoke alarm and the CO alarm are both working. And I want to know who's living in that building. So they might only have one person on the lease, but there may be four people that are actually living there. So I want to know who the dependents are and why they're there. And I want them to tell me in writing who lives there so that if I see four people in that building and they've only told me about two, then there's a potential problem. And the reason I want to know that is because they're consuming resources, right? Water, sewer, possibly heat, possibly electricity, depending on the building. And also because you want to know who's in the building. Now, the fire plan requires you to know everybody that's in the building and you could be held accountable, liable if one of those people that's not on your lease actually started some kind of event, a fire or a flood or uh, an altercation between tenants. You need to know these things. So visiting a tenant is first and foremost, and I get them to sign that this is their understanding of the relationship, that there is no other implied understandings. Uh, Sometimes uh, a tenant will say, well, the previous landlord said that they would paint my property and they never did. So you want to make sure that there isn't any of that kind of expectation. And the other thing that you do is you go through the units, ask them if it's okay if I take a look and tell me what's broken because now is the time to fix it all, right? Happy tenants, new landlord, shows that you're listening. So that's one of the things I do immediately. I look at anything that was rented, and the most common is a hot water tank. First thing I do is I cancel that contract and I buy it out. Uh, If you think about it, you rent a hot water tank for $40 a month, pick a number, $30 a month. That's uh, $360 a year. A new hot water tank would take you perhaps 15 years, maybe a 20-year lifespan. A repair, one repair might cost you $150, and that happens once every 10 to 15 years. 
a brand new hot water tank would cost you $700 installed. So you would get your money back in two years and the remaining 13 years would be money in your pocket. So if you take that $360 and divide that by a cap rate of, I don't know, 6% or 5%, let's keep it simple, 360 would be $7,000 you've added to the value of the property Hmm. by not renting your hot water tank. And if you've got a hot water tank for every unit, which some of these buildings do, you could be adding tens of thousands of dollars in value to your property. And that's just one example. You know, there's a hundred. A dripping water faucet or a running toilet, toilets use up 45% of all the water in your average home. So a toilet that runs is probably losing a gallon every hour, maybe more. Dripping faucets are the same. And your water bill can double in one month with one leaking toilet. And I mean, things like that, let's just step back a little bit. Things like that, like what you've just said there, buying out the hot water tanks, that kind of thing, that -hmm. could have been the difference on your refinance between getting what you needed to get and just not that being not possible, right? That is the operative goal. Everything that I do is to increase property value, not because I want to sell it, but because I want to refinance it. Exactly. Right. And so that's why people might say, well, what's the point of doing that right now? I mean, my tenants are paying it off and I'm not getting as much cash flow. I mean, if you can do it, then the way that you're talking about is definitely the best way to go. Because then now when the bank is looking at it for your potential refinance, it's much more attractive. 100%. That is the end goal for me in everything I do. When I'm looking at buying a property, my first objective is to find out what the upside is. And most people look at the rent. Well, the rent's 850 and I could get 1100. Yeah. Well, try getting rid of that tenant, right? Until they move out, that money is meaningless. Mm-hmm. But if you got a 25 year old, 85% efficiency boiler, gas boiler, that's costing you $8,000 a year in fossil fuel, gas, natural gas. And you replace that for, pick a number, $10,000. And on that $8,000, it instantly drops because you've got a 99% efficiency furnace. It drops from $8,000 a year to $5,000 a year. Well, that $3,000 savings at a five cap, in other words, take $3,000 and divide it by 5%, comes out to $60,000 that you just added. And you can borrow 75% of that when your mortgage comes due. So if you do that for the boilers, you put in new toilets, you sweet meter, you know, put in separate electric meters for every unit and get the tenants to pay their own electricity. All of these things can add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars that you add in equity before your mortgage comes through. And then you go borrow 75% of that. Perfect. So I don't think we want to get into this too much. Maybe we won't go through the exact questions that you have here, but I know you've drafted a series of questions that you feel that a buyer should be asking their property investment realtor. Now, is that like... Well, I've got a long list, yeah. I actually published that on my website. Perfect. So they can go there and have a look at it. That's right. What's the uh, website? It's uh, Aztec Realty. That's spelled A-Z-T-E-C-H. R-E-A-L-T-Y dot com. There's a tab there called services. 
Uh, and under there is, I don't know, 30 to 40 questions that you should be asking whoever it is that's going to help you sell this property. It doesn't have to be a realtor. It could be, you know, your best friend who says, I know everything about real estate. Well, if they can't answer those questions, don't use them. <laughs> okay, so that's actually a pretty good uh, little giveaway that you've got there. So that's sure. great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Now, you are the founder of the Landlords Association of Durham Region. That's right. Right. Do uh, you want to tell us a bit about that? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't live in Durham, so that's a, a bit of an irony. But when I bought my first property, I actually met with a number of landlords, five or six of them. And I said to them, why don't you guys start a landlord association? I would be your first member. And they turned around and said, well, we tried, you know, 10 years ago and all we ever got were people who wanted to have their legal questions answered. And it turned out to be more hassle than it was worth. But if you start it, we'll join. So I thought about it for a couple of months and then uh, I decided I would take a different venue and a different tack, you know, approach to this type of organization. And, well, we're going into our seventh year now. In January, next month, will be seven years. So tell us a little bit about then what, like, if someone was interested in finding out more about that, what do you guys do? What kind of stuff would they learn? All that kind of thing. Okay. Well, there are two parts to most meetings. The first part is we always bring in an expert speaker from the industry, nonpartisan. In other words, we don't ever have real estate agents, insurance agents, or mortgage agents speaking, and we don't do product demos. What we do is we bring someone in who may have a great product, but they're solving a need and they'll speak about the need. So we would have a pest control guy come in and talk about, you know, the pervasiveness of bed bugs and cockroaches and that type of thing and the types of solutions that they have for dealing with it and dealing with tenants, you know, in particular. But guests I've had are estate planners for when you pass on the legacy and that type of stuff. I've had MPAC uh, come in, CMHC had the mayors come in, fire department, police department. We had a crime scene uh, specialist come in one time because uh, the more units you've got, sooner or later you're going to run into what they refer to as an unattended death. And I've had one where somebody dies, either natural causes or otherwise. There was a listing I had, um, a murder was committed across the street, which stigmatized our property. Not my property, but my client's property. And then that landlord was later beaten up and put in hospital mm. a month later. There was a, two warring drug dealers in his property. So, you know, you can have these kinds of issues arise. Uh, one of the big ones is how do you deal with uh, bad tenants and uh, eviction processes in the landlord tenant board. So I've had the LTB come in, I've had paralegals come in that speak. In fact, I've got a paralegal on January 4th. This That will be our first meeting of the new year. 2018, we have a paralegal coming in that uh, will be speaking about what I call the Rental Unfairness Act. <laughs> you know, they called it the Rental Fairness Act. I don't think it was fair at all. And uh, there were 16 changes to the Residential Tenancies Act. Uh, so almost no landlords know what that's all about. So we've got a paralegal coming in for that. I got another paralegal coming in later, I think in March or April, who will be speaking about rent increases above the guideline. You know, how do you increase the rent when you've got rent controls? So we'd be talking about that. And then the second half, after the expert speaker is finished, they usually talk for an hour to an hour and a half and answer questions. Then we have our own uh, networking. 
or anybody that wants to stay afterwards. We've got an hour or so and we uh, ask questions about issues that arise and how people solve them. And of course, networking. You know, just uh, do you know anybody that's a good painter or a good plumber or, you know, a bookkeeper and so on? So we have those kinds of referrals. And that's what we do once a month uh, throughout the year. Okay. And that sounds really, really helpful. So you've been doing that for seven years. Yep. I have about 700 people on the mailing list. And I'd say between three, 30 and 40 people show up at any one meeting. We charge $150 a year, which I don't think is very much for, you know, the value that they get. And if they go to Durham, D-U-R-H-A-M, DurhamLandlords.com, it's a basic website, you know, a minimal website, but it does provide all the details that you'd want to know about. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, oh my, we've been through a lot of stuff here. You know what? This is good because now it'll give them a reason, like now it'll give everybody listening a reason to go back and listen to this show again. Right. Yeah. Well, if you've got more questions or if they have questions, of course, I'm, you know, table them and uh, we could have another podcast if you like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I know you've got plenty to talk about. You and I, when we first started speaking, (laughs) I mean, we'd get on the phone and (laughs) uh, yeah, yeah. half an hour conversation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, well, thank you again. And just I guess last thing here is how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way? Well, my email address, I guess, would be ideal. If they have something pressing, they can use my phone number. Phone number is 416-525-1558. Email address is C, as in Charlie or Chris, S-E-E-P-E at AztecRealty.com. Okay, and as usual, of course, Sandy always gets everything up there so that all of the links and stuff that uh, Chris has talked about today are going to be under the tab for his episode on our website. So once you go over there, you don't have to write all that down. It'll just be there, and and you'll be able to get in touch with Chris if you need to. Absolutely, yep. Yep, happy to help if I can. Right on. So, Sandy, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, best way uh, still right now is through our office, 905-308-8333 or info at mckayrealtynetwork.com. Okay, and if uh, anyone wants to reach out and talk to me, they can reach me at, I'll give my phone number to 289-927-0464. Or, of course, you can reach me at rob at mrbreakthrough.ca. That's M-R-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H. Yeah. Okay, so... Again, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on. Can't say that enough. And Appreciate the opportunity, and thank you again for the invitation. And everybody listening, have a great day. Thanks.